Welcome, everyone, to episode 123, Shot to the Heart. I'm Dr. Kiki with Dr. Daylon James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are not doing a Bon Jovi remembrance show. This is a science and stem cell show. How's it going over there, Dalen? I got to tell you, I got a shot to my heart just hearing that title. Just looking forward to this episode. I have to admit that just like you were in love with John Bon Jovi in your youth, I have had a scientist crush on Chuck Murray. I mean, as long as I've been in the game, he's one of the guys that did the big things early on. To his credit, he keeps on humming. So I'm so psyched for this show, Keeks. Yeah. Do this. I'm excited. Also, that's right. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Charles Murray today, a professor from University of Washington School of Medicine, who recently published a paper using stem cell-derived heart cells to treat heart damage in monkeys. So it's a remarkable, shall we say, groundbreaking study. We are super excited. Everyone, you can check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. Subscribe to our newsletter there. You can also find all of our past episodes and other great resources at stemcell.com. Follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe on iTunes and on Stitcher so that you can get new episodes downloaded automatically to your phones. Are you ready, Dalen? I'm near ready. But we got to do some first, right? Don't we always do some first before we get to the nitty gritty? This time, I got to tell you guys, if you have trouble keeping current with all the publications and news in your field, like I do sometimes, which is why I started doing this podcast, let us help you. You know, Muscle Cell News covers all three types of muscle, cardiac, smooth, and skeletal. Apropos to today's subject, this newsletter is free and keeps readers current with the latest peer-reviewed publications, industry news, policies events and jobs in the muscle cell research field with a hand curated email sent right to your inbox every week okay so subscribe to muscle cell news and the rest of stem cells 20 weekly science newsletters at www.stemcellnewsletters.com all right keeks are we done or we can we get to the roundup we got something else to do or what get to it get on with it are we done with the show is that it no <laughs> yeah goodbye <laughs> And I'm out. <laughs> then we're out. No, we have a roundup of the news for you right now. Let's get started. How do you feel about leeches, Dalen? I'm not a fan. <laughs> but if they were used medically, say potentially to clean up a wound, to potentially keep something bleeding that needs to be bleeding, but in a very sanitary way. I'm still grossed <laughs> out. <laughs> All right. Well, there are a number of leeches approved for medical use by the FDA, and very often they're used to help patients heal from reconstructive surgery because they do suck up that blood. Leeches, the blood, little blood suckers, they secrete anticoagulants that allow the blood to keep flowing that aids tissue growth. So you get a little bit less scar formation and better healing. But in the early 2000s, researchers noticed that there was slight increase in antibiotic-resistant infections in these patients, and they were being caused by a bacteria, the Aeromonas bacteria, that can be found in one of these medicinal leech species, the Herudo verbana species of leech. 
Looking at their tummies, these little leech tummies using mass spectrometry, they found drug-resistant bacteria, low levels of both ciprofloxacin and enroflaxin, enrofloxacin. Let's see if I can get all the syllables in there. And this is a veterinary antibiotic that's used on poultry farms. The researchers think that the leeches might have been exposed to these antibiotics through poultry blood that's used for food on the leech farms. So it's like this cycle. The poultry farmers give antibiotics to their poultry to cut down on infections. That affects the bacteria. We know that there's been this ongoing story about antibiotic resistance in poultry and in farm animals that are given antibiotics in their food. But now it's potentially having trickle-down effects to leeches, which are being used in medical applications. So the researchers who published this study, they are suggesting that leech farmers eliminate these antibiotics from their operations. Just another reason to eliminate them. But this bacterial species, which is also found in freshwater environments, having antibiotic resistance is a cause for concern for a larger scale because low amounts of antibiotics have been detected in the environment. So Could this lead to complications in preventing global efforts against drug-resistant infections? Yeah, the big picture, big picture implications there, I must admit. And it shows you how the cascade and unintended consequences and all that, but I'm just still stuck on that the leeches are approved by the FDA. I think this is a reason we should get we should get rid of leeches. No more leeches. Oh, come on. My takeaway is no leeches. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for looking down and, oh, there's just the leech helping out. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's natural. I'm doing air quotes around, yeah. <laughs> around that word right now. Natural. Mm. Natural. All natural. Leech therapy, which could be causing problems. Other things that can cause problems, headers, you know, when you're playing soccer, mm-hmm. doing a header. I mean, it's the header in soccer is part of the game, is it not? We grew up playing soccer, the balls come in at the scrum, and you jump up to use your head to get the ball out of the group, to get that benefit. Well, we have a concern with headers because similar to as in football, when football players collide with one another, which can cause concussions, so can headers. Headers can cause brain damage. And the and concussion. And so the question is, how do we find the people who are most susceptible to damage to the brain? How do we protect them from damage to the brain? One thing is getting young players to stop doing headers entirely. But a new study reported July 31st in radiology suggests that females, women who play soccer, have worse symptoms after brain injuries than male athletes. But they did a comparison of post-header brains that this hasn't been done before. Researcher from Albert Einstein College in New York from 2013 to 2016 recruited 98 soccer players from amateur teams, including colleges, comparing male and female players who had just headed the ball a similar number of times over the past year For men, that was about 487 headers, and women had a median of 469 headers. However, women's brains had more spots of microscopic damage. The MRI scanning they used, which is diffusion tensor imaging, 
looks at white matter changes in the brain, which are the axons that send uh, messages from place to place in the brain. Seems as though those were damaged. The altered spots indicated possible damage to nerve cell axons and myelin. And in men, only three brain regions showed potential damage associated with the heading frequency versus eight in women. These weren't enough to cause symptoms, behavioral symptoms, but the a year of heading the soccer ball for over 400 times caused changes in the brain, more changes in women than in men, and repeated blows over more years could contribute to chronic traumatic brain injury, which can lead to problems like encephalopathies and behavioral changes like memory loss and other behavioral damage. So the question is, why are women more at risk? And previous studies have suggested that it may have to do with hormonal changes and genetics. I know for a fact that there is one previous study that found that behavioral changes were greater, or at least the inflammation was greater after damage to the brain during certain parts of the menstrual cycle. So there are certain periods in which the brain is more protected than others, it seems, in the female brain, although this does still need to be supported more fully. This is a trip. I think, you know, the male-female thing, uh, some part of me just says that that angle, there's just someone out there who's going to, like, use that for evil purposes. I'm more concerned about just the fundamental idea. And what occurs to me is, like, as a society, we become more, like, intense. And this is an old story about the training, the answer, we got to train our kids young, we got to have formalized training and the level of intensity because that's a lot. I mean, 500 blows to the head is too much for a kid. For a kid. And, and you know, they're looking at some of the people that were in this study were college level, which is still pretty young. Yeah, still young. They're still de- in college. Yeah. That's like playing fo- this whole thing, football in college. I mean, it's like all these things. How can you? Uh, uh, that's another story, but. It's, it's very disconcerting. Having two young boys, I've been like, oh, you can't play football because I'm sorry, but there's soccer, there's soccer, there's soccer. Now, I'm wondering. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's the occasional blow to the head. We can get through it, but this repeated yeah. injury is what really concerns people these days, this kind yeah. of ongoing inflammation that doesn't really have the chance to heal itself before the next impact. And then... You know, we're not woodpeckers. We don't have padding <laughs> in our brains. We don't have special anatomical adaptations for collisions with our head. We don't have giant yeah, skulls. No we don't have not antlers. To mention, <laughs> not to mention, you get a bunch of kids playing together. That's one kind of header. And then you get kids playing on a field and the ball's crossing hundreds. You know, it's traveling a long way. That gains a lot of momentum, a lot of gravity on there. That's a bigger hit. Yes. And just a bunch of kids playing in, in, you know, in the rec room. So this needs a, a real close look. We can't make the same mistake we did with the football injury, just ignoring it. Exactly. Yep. Something else we can't ignore, Ebola in Africa. And a new species of Ebola virus has been discovered in bats in Sierra Leone. The government announced this in on July 26th. They calling this strain the Bambali strain. Researchers from the University of California, Davis, who working with the Virus Hunting Predict Project, 
have said that this is a, it's definitely related to other Ebola viruses, but it is quite different. It can infect human cells, but they don't know whether or not it actually causes disease in people. The researcher Tracy Goldstein from UC Davis says it has the machinery to enter a human cell, but that doesn't mean that it's going to make people sick. So there's, that's still yet to be seen. The Restin virus, a species of Ebola, can cause disease in non-human primates, but doesn't actually make humans sick, for example. However, other species of the virus cause epidemics, and we have been developing vaccines for them. We don't know at this point where the Bambali virus stands, but research is ongoing. Yeah, as we record here, there's another outbreak of Ebola in Africa in a yeah. human population. The good news there, I think, though, is this, these vaccines have been showing limited success, although limited, I would emphasize there. Yeah. And no matter what progress we, we make, it looks like there's another new virus right around the corner always, so we won't get lazy. I know. We just have to stay on it. I, I mean, I've grown up with this idea of the pandemic virus that's going to, at some point, just take down the planet, right? It's, it's just part of our thinking at, the, at this point in time. And it's not the if now, it's the when. And it is programs like this PREDICT project and others that are constantly monitoring these areas of emerging infectious disease that are really going to give us, hopefully, that leg up in our efforts. Now, Technology is also giving us a leg up in our efforts. And in uh, last summer, we reported on a university of Oregon Health Sciences University researcher, Shukrat Metalipov, here in Portland, Oregon, who reported repairing genetic mutation in human embryos using CRISPR. And it was this huge announcement shortly followed by a bunch of controversy and wondering whether or not he could have actually done it. People questioning whether or not the cell's mechanisms and the CRISPR repair mechanisms actually worked in a way that would have allowed him to repair a mutated gene in the father's genetic material by replacing it with the mother's full gene. And this is a huge question. So this week, there have been a couple of responses to Shukrat's publication. And this is the way science works, is this conversation through the literature where things are reviewed, things are tested, and the conversation continues. Testing is the problem, however. Not many countries allow embryonic testing. And labs very often are not set up to do testing in the way that Metalipov and his team have uh, endeavored to make these genetic editing changes. So the fact is, we haven't been able to replicate it, although Metalipov says that he is continuing to do gene editing very successfully in his lab and with the teams in Japan that he has been working with. So researcher at Maria Jassen at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center wrote a critique that's appearing in Nature this week that considers it a near biological impossibility because the father's DNA and the mother's DNA are in separate nuclei until that reproductive process actually takes place. So how does the repair get made? But other researchers are reporting that there are cellular 
processes that could actually allow this CRISPR repair mechanism to work the way that Metalopov says. So there's a group at MIT that's experimenting on mouse embryos that says it has conclusive evidence that this kind of repair mechanism occurs in mice as well. So there's evidence supporting Metalopov's conclusions, but there's not a lot. And so the controversy continues. What say you, Daylon? Well, I have to circle back to what you started out with, the way science works. I love this story. I mean, it's fraught, right? Because it's a whole debate and everybody's watching their back. And I wouldn't say, you know, with these brief communications arising format, it's I think it's funny to read in between the lines because the language is very careful where, you know, this could and all it's all hypotheticals. But really, you can see the animus seething between the lines of, of like, you're an idiot, pretty much. <laughs> There's no <laughs> so, way you did that. <laughs> exactly. And this is so good. I really advise uh, the listeners to go out and look at these three brief communications arising in this most recent issue, because they are these two perspectives that are kind of critical of the interpretation and then the defense from the original authors, Ma et al., including Shukret. And so the science, the the batting around of the potential interpretations, I think, is what's really great about this, because it's not taking any issue with the technical methods. I think it's saying, well, the thing that you interpreted as this, what you may not have considered is that there's an alternate interpretation mm -hmm. and then trying to provide evidence for that. And then Shukrat comes back with saying, OK, we broaden our methods. So it's this whole discourse, which at the end of it is going to be so essential because it takes this super high profile result, which was interpreted, you know, the, the theoretical possibilities of this is essentially cutting males out of the genome. You could right. just say, we're going to target all these genes and they'll revert to the maternal chromosome and we'll just get rid of all those inconvenient male factors. <laughs> so this, I, at the end of it, I think everyone will come out and say, you know, we were right. We didn't know how right we were. Maybe we weren't as right as we were. We thought we were. Either way, I think we're going to arrive at a consensus where everybody's happy. They're still seething. Mm -hmm. But it'll moderate, I think, the enthusiasm for sure is one negative impact of this. But I think that's essential to not racing forward prematurely. Yeah, the racing forward prematurely. I mean, we've also had the news recently of uh, the question of uh, the errors that arise through CRISPR. Yes. And this was brought up in one of the commentaries as well. You know, if you're deleting things, but it's deleting the wrong stuff or it's right. deleting too much, what effects is that going to have? And so this is going to be a long term back and forth. And before it ever becomes a germline editing therapy that we're using on humans, a lot of questions still need to be answered. And one of them is whether Metalopov, and I said Japan earlier, but uh, his co-workers were in South Korea, China, and the Salk Institute, whether or not they have actually done what they say in the way they say they have. That needs to be answered. All credit to Metalopov. Like, this is his second act. He yeah. did SCNT. And now he's continued to roll forward. And none of these questions would have even been raised if he hadn't, you know, done the work. So yep. this is so good for science, even though it's fun to read because the negative of it is so fun. 
I honestly love this kind of stuff. It's like, ooh, this is the yeah, volley. It's, it's that tennis match back and forth, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's <laughs> like, exciting ooh. for dorks like us. <laughs> I know. On to more. That does it yeah, for me. I got yeah. some semi-exciting stuff. I think that's the peak, but rightfully so. The segue should be the peak, and now we're all downhill, Kiki. I got some stem cell stories for you, starting with neural. I heard once somewhere that 98% of research funding went to neural. Could that be right? No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, we're going to start with neural. Yeah, the bias, you neural people. I love, I love you. I love you very dearly. I'm going to tell you now, though, about it's important. You know why neural? Because it's important, and these guys are heavy hitters, and they keep doing great stuff like this. This is researchers at UCSD School of Medicine. They're making uh, spinal cord neural stem cells from human pluripotent stem cells, okay? And these, the important thing is these neural stem cells, they differentiate into a whole diverse population of cells that can disperse throughout the spinal cord, be maintained for long periods of time. So this is kind of what we're all looking for, right? An engraftable cell that can disseminate and form the many essential cell types that are important to restoring function of injured spinal cords. This achievement it was, it was described in a recent issue, August 6th, online issue of Nature Method. And it's an advance not only for basic research, disease modeling and all that, which is huge with IPS cells and patient specific, but also it's just like a bread and butter improved translatable cell source for all these regenerative therapeutic strategies for spinal cord injury. In recent years, there's been a lot of work looking at this type of thing. And it was kind of the big splash initially with this. They had these animations of the mouse restoring function. It kind of set fire to this whole idea I'm not going to mention who did that, Handsome Hands. The guy who initiated that now, it's been run down through the system in so many iterations, and the progress has been steady, but it's been limited. I think enthusiasm has been reduced, but in this new paper, the first author, postdoc Hiromi Kumamaru, and in uh, Mark Tuzinski's group, who's a professor of neuroscience and the director of the UC San Diego Translational Neuroscience Institute, they describe creating this cell line that appears to significantly advance the cause. It has this significant proliferative potential long-term. It can form all these cell types. And these cells were grafted into injured spinal cords of rats. And the grafts, the subsequent or downstream cells that came from the grafts, were rich in excitatory neurons. They extended large numbers of axons over long distances. And they innervated the target structures, uh, enabling robust corticospinal regeneration. Like, this is the dream. Huge. According to Tuzinski, of course, a, a lot of work needs to be done, but these newly generated cells will constitute sources, robust source that can be kind of off the shelf for preliminary human or early human clinical trials in a time frame, he says, of three to five years. What do we think of that, Kiki? Oh. Three to five years. Ooh. This is even better than our five to ten years. <laughs> I know. This is advanced. <laughs> um, of course, it still needs to be determined the cells are safe. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and they're going to do a lot of rodent, non-human primate in advance of that. I guess they're going to do that in three to five years. And it should be noted that this isn't just about spinal cord injury, but because you can generate this whole diverse repertoire, is good for modeling, as I said, but also the drug screening for disorders that involve spinal cord dysfunction, which are, you know, a whole array, ALS, progressive muscular atrophy, hereditary spastic paraplegia, spinal cerebellar, ataxia, a lot of stuff. Genetic disorders, oftentimes, that are characterized by this progressive 
this coordination of gait and eye movement. So this is one of those, I like the bread and butter type studies. They don't get enough attention because they seem really technical, hence nature methods, but this is a big step forward. The big thing is you want cells that integrate and that, you know, don't end up having to go through a period of figuring out who they are, which can often cause bigger problems than what you start out with. And so going from the HPSCs to these specific spinal cord neural stem cells, like you're, you're skipping a step there and the transplantation can be amazing. Yeah, the potential is great. Research, transplantation, let's see it. Yeah, Kiki, and your point's well taken about correct integration. It's a good segue to the next story, which is about a new trial for Parkinson's disease. Do you remember famously, you know, the thing was with cell therapy, they took the aborted fetus neural stem cells they inject in these Parkinson's disease patients, and they had these violent dyskinesias. So like you're saying, like getting the correct integration is correct, the right cell types, the right places. And lo and behold, Japan, again, leading the way with these trials of iPS cells. I've talked a little bit about the show, how this little discomforting, the pace with which they're going here. You know, there was Takahashi initially in the eye and Pete Coffey in defense of Japan. They're not the only ones. Pete Coffey had that trial that we talked about. That was in Nature uh, Biotechnology, also in the eye. But there's now conditional approval from Japan again for a trial of induced pluripotent stem cells for ischemic heart disease. So they're really pushing forward, and we can add another one to the list here. It's a first-of-its-kind clinical trial that's been announced using iPS cells to treat Parkinson's disease. The trial is being led by uh, Professor Jun Takahashi, Kyoto, and it follows on a successful application of the treatment in primates um, that was reported last year. We didn't cover it on the show, but it was a big story. So this is seven patients that are going to be treated with iPS-derived dopaminergic cells, and they're going to be followed up for two years. The primary objective, of course, is going to be safety and tolerability. Details of the trial, it's an injection of 5 million neural progenitor cells directly into the brain of patients. That's all the detail I have there in terms of where in the brain. And of course, the researchers hope that over time, the progenitors will mature and graft in the patient's neural networks and begin to release dopamine. We all know dopamine is the fundamental element missing or that's attenuated in Parkinson's disease, which causes these tremors. And I'm kind of confused as to why these cells are going to be any more predictable (laughs) than the cells from aborted fetus. But at least I think they're going with this approach that they learned their lesson from the IPS patient specific each time because the quality control involved with that is kind of prohibitive. So they're going to use iPS cells that are derived from a bank. So they're going to be allogeneic, which I mean, raises kind of, I don't know if it's a blessing in disguise, but probably not considering that there's an immune barrier in the brain. But like there's a transplant rejection, it might be a good thing if you got some wild cells in there. But you know, this transplant rejection potential also necessitates the immune suppression. So it's a balance, you know, maybe more effective uh, in terms of the QC to use the bank cells. They're going to have to worry about the immune rejection and complications of immune suppression, and they're recruiting Japanese residents. I wouldn't want to volunteer, but, you know, if you're in the throes of Parkinson's, I can see how this should be attractive. I just am worried about the risk. You know, there's worse things than being in the throes of Parkinson's, and that's, I don't even want to imagine 
some yeah. of the un- unintended consequences, unforeseen. I mean, who knows? So, yeah, it's a little scary to me, Kiki. I mean, the fact that it was successful in primates, you know, it, that's what's brought it to these human trial levels. So there is evidence, but we know that these types of human trials have gone wrong before. Right. So we hope that it will work this time, that they've figured out the kinks in the system and worked them out and that it will be successful. You know, we keep trying. Yeah, we keep trying. By we, I mean Japan. Japan <laughs> is really pushing. And we know, the writing's on the wall there. We all know it's, they pretty much invented IPSLs. So they have a kind of cultural impetus to capitalize and be the first to capitalize. So I get it. I don't get it. <laughs> a lot of mixed feelings there. Yeah. So let me press on away from neural five seconds, okay? If, you, if you're a neural freak like most of you, you can turn off the show. No, don't turn it off. <laughs> Let's get some breadth. Let's learn some new Let's things. We're on in our horizons. Yeah, we're going far away here, guys. We're moving into another realm. So a Purdue University studies uncovered mechanisms that lead to stem cell formation and maintenance in plants, okay? And this is not nothing at all. This is a science study and it's important. It may one day allow scientists to manipulate stem cell production to increase biomass, you know, because plants make food, but also biofuels. There's a whole spectrum. Agriculture pretty much is the purview of this discovery. And we're living in a world with shrinking resources. So we better start looking out. These are findings reported in science by Yun Zhao, an assistant professor in the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology at Purdue. In his group, describe how plants create a pool of stem cells separate from their differentiated daughter cells in the meristem. And the daughter cells on the basal side of the meristem maintain stem cells. So it's this kind of reciprocal relationship. Just to go into a bit of detail here in background, so the undifferentiated stem cells there in the meristem, the apex are tips uh, of the plant shoots and roots, and they serve as a bank of blank cells that support plant growth and give rise to the different organs of the plant, like the leaves or the flowers or whatnot. Um, Zhao is investigating the ways in which plants initiate stem cell production and then keep the stem cells activated and balance kind of stem cell self-renewal with creation of these organs. With colleagues, Zhao shows that uh, this process is controlled by, get this, hairy meristem. You thought that we were outside of the days of the fun gene names. We're not. We're not. I I saw this story and I saw I just started giggling to myself. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't well. know, maybe if I were to have another child, that could be a potential name <laughs> for him. What's your name? Harry. Harry, Harry. Maristem. Oh, boy. <laughs> Oh man, I was gonna try and keep it. You're wandering into the. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I'm usually that guy, so I'm glad you (laughs) went there. And I'm trying to keep it professional. Anyway, Harry Mariston and Wuschel genes. Okay, these are the two genes at at the center of this story. So Wuschel alone activates this gene, Clavata three. Clavata gene. It's a stem cell specific gene, so it's activated in stem cells that are like self renewing. So Wuschel alone activates this gene in differentiating cells, hairy meristem and Wuschel, they come together to repress this stem cell specific gene that results in specification, differentiation of the stem cells into these organs. And there's a whole gradient that's, you know, essential and critical to this polarization. But really, the thing I think that elevated this story to science was that the whole idea here, the whole hypothesis 
was born out of a 3D computational model. Essentially, this experiment was created in silico. Just looking at the gene expression patterns in the meristem, the genes that control stem cell identity, and you know, modeling them in this 3D computational model. And then that computer-generated hypothesis was confirmed on an experimental basis. So I think it may be a peek into the future, or one future, one arm of science, which is this kind of in silico where we're, I wouldn't call it AI, but we're using, um, especially in terms of spatial organization, you know, there's things that computers can model for us that uh, can, you know, be hypothesis generators. And this is a great example of that. So we may be in the age, we may have transcended laboratory science here. Well, what I think is really fascinating is for years, you know, we've had the theoretical physicists who do the math and the computation and come up with hypotheses that are then confirmed or not by the experimental physicists. And that in the physics world is the way it's been. However, in like biology, it's forever, it's been just experimental. We run the experiments. And now with computing power, suddenly we have these big data sets and we've got this ability computationally to generate hypotheses. And so I think maybe what we're going to see is a split where there will be more theoretical biologists. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right. And you nailed it right there with the processing power. I remember when I was in grad school, this protein structure and function teacher, I'll never forget her. I think her name is, well, maybe I did forget her. No, I didn't. Linda Nicholson. There you go. And she said... You know, listen to the show, Linda, and if I'm misquoting, you tell me. <laughs> but I think she said that there's no computer that could ever take primary protein sequence, just the amino acid sequence, mm. and tell you the structure. Right. And I think that that may be premature. I think that that amazing complexity involved with it, that may be involved with that, I think that computers are growing to the point where they're way beyond our ability to predict their limits at, at the very least. So let's see. Let's see, yeah. Dr. Nick. See if that comes back to haunt you. Yeah, but it definitely, it's a, it's a good partnership. The computational hypothesis generation and then the experimentation that can take us through to really understanding. It's awesome. So let's understand. Understand some more things, everyone. It's time for us to get to the interview, which we've been very excited about since the beginning of this show. But before we get there, did you know that genome editing just got easier? Well, it has. If, that is, you use Cloner from Stem Cell Technologies to increase the cloning efficiency of human pluripotent stem cells, HPSCs. As many of you know, genome editing of HPSCs relies heavily on the survival of single cells to establish clonal cell lines. Cloner, that's spelled clone R, C-L-O-N-E-R, is a medium supplement that works with mTESR1, which is spelled M-T-E-S-R-1, or teaser E8, which is T-E-S-R-E8. Unlike current methods, cloner enables the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single-cell adaptation, thus minimizing the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities. And you can learn more about this at stemcell.com slash cloner. That's stemcell.com slash C-L-O-N-E-R. All right, on to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Charles Murray, currently a professor of pathology, bioengineering, and medicine cardiology, and director of the Center for Cardiovascular Biology 
and Interim Director of the Institute for Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine at the University of Washington. Dr. Murray's research interests center on stem cell biology and cardiovascular diseases, where they differentiate pluripotent stem cells to investigate and identify new therapies for heart disease. A large portion of the lab's efforts are directed at harnessing the power of stem cells to promote muscle regeneration of the injured heart. And here to talk to us about his work and recently published paper, Dr. Charles Murray. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's just absolutely, I'm excited about talking about your research. I mean, cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death for people in the United States, and it just seems to be growing. And you're trying to stop the damage that's done. But can you introduce yourself a bit more to us and tell us, you know, a bit more about the focus of your lab and where your research interests came from? I grew up in the great state of North Dakota. I was educated at Duke University in North Carolina, came out to Seattle to do my residency training. I'm a pathologist by medical training. And then I've gotten progressively more interested in basic science and the ability of stem cells, which are these awesome little units of development and regeneration to be used for medical purposes. We were early adopters of human embryonic stem cells when they first came out. We started playing around with those in the late 90s. And ever since then, I've been fascinated with trying to use them to um, understand how the heart forms during normal development. And then can we grow the heart back after it gets injured? Great. So before we dig in there, because there's so much to cover, you've been very prolific. Can you give us an idea? What's the current like state of the art? Not experimentally, but clinically, what's the best we can do for this? You know, it's kills. You could tell us well, how many people is this kill and what can we do for these people who survive acute heart attacks? Heart disease, as Kiki alluded at the beginning, is the number one cause of death in the world, uh, number one cause of death in the country. It's one of these number ones for all the wrong reasons. Number one, Medicare expense, number one reason of admission to the hospital, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. It's the big one. And the main problem is that the heart is the least regenerative organ in the human body. And so when it gets injured, like if a person has a heart attack, for example, it doesn't grow back new muscle tissue. It grows back scar tissue instead. And this means that the pump has a deficit in pump function and people tend to spiral downward into heart failure. It's been very tough from a drug development standpoint to make progress in this area. In the last 20 years, we've had one new drug approved by the FDA for the treatment of heart failure. And so, uh, and in fact, the, the section of the FDA that meets to do cardiovascular drugs often doesn't even meet because there's nothing for them to discuss. So my thought is clearly we need a new approach. This is breaking the bank and we're going to shift all this burden onto the younger generation. And I'd like to do something about that. And what you're doing here, I mean, in your recent Nature Biotechnology paper, you have uh, been working on these cardiomyocyte grafts. This is a heart patch of sorts that can be transplanted into the injured heart over the area of injury. Can you tell us a bit about this? It's not quite a patch per se. At least it's not, it's not going in. It's a suspension of isolated cells. So we take stem cells, turn them into heart muscle in the dish, and then disperse them. And then we can store them frozen until such time as we need them. And, and when we want to do a transplant, we thaw them, we put them into an injection system and give the heart a shot, essentially. And the, that suspension of cells, then they're, they're very smart. They self-organize, they form new tissue, they connect one with another. 
they connect to the surrounding host heart muscle. And then they call in the ingrowth of new blood vessels and new connective tissue. So they end up setting up a pretty decent looking facsimile of human heart muscle in whatever location we've transplanted them into. Yeah, so I mean, as I alluded to earlier, this isn't the first time you've done this. A few years ago, you had a similar story in Primate where the story was that they could regenerate the heart, similar approach, similar amount of cells. I'm sure your protocols have become much more refined. Since then, this study, the real innovation, I guess, was improving function or demonstrable improvement of function, that which was very impressive. And also the sophistication of the tools you used to identify kind of the nature of the graft and its function and the potential for arrhythmia, safety, all that. Can you elaborate on how this new study built upon the previous and kind of what we're building towards? Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for your kind words about that. Well, so what we previously showed was that we could transplant in a, a large number of cells, the better part of a billion cells, into the, the heart attack in a macaque monkey, and we could grow back a good chunk of the wall. And that was very exciting. We also showed that that new muscle uh, survived long-term and beat in synchrony with the surrounding heart muscle. So all of that was very exciting, and that was you know, a major breakthrough in, in our minds, at least. What we found that was quite unexpected was that this electrically destabilized the heart and that it caused the animals to have what are called ventricular arrhythmias for a period of a couple of weeks after transplantation. These were too, they didn't make the monkeys too sick. That was a good thing, but that was very concerning. And so as we moved into this current study, the, we had two major questions. First is, do we actually make the heart pump better after we transplant the cells in? And then the second question was, what the heck's going on with these arrhythmias? What's the mechanism that's underlying it? So that, those were really what the goals of the study. Did you figure out what was uh, underlying these arrhythmias? What was the mechanism? We did, and, and we were wrong again. I always like to uh, swing for the fence in terms of like trying to, I always like to have a hunch, right? But my hunch is, this is why it's good that I'm an experimentalist and not a gambler per se, because my bets are usually wrong. And so there are two basic ways you can get a rhythm disturbance in the heart. The first is to have a slow area of electrical conduction that sets up what's called a rotor. And it goes around and around, kind of like people doing the wave in the stadium. And it, it's a self-exciting focus, basically, and that can make the heart race. The second way that you can get arrhythmias is to have a place that's acting like an ectopic pacemaker. So a pacemaker that is out of place and it's uh, pinging away, sending off signals. I was quite convinced that we'd created an area of slow conduction because this was immature heart muscle and that we were creating a, what's called a re-entrant arrhythmia with one of those little circus movements. That turned out to be completely wrong. What instead we were doing was making new pacemakers in the heart. And these graft cells that we put in actually compete with the heart's own pacemaking mechanisms. And they just sit there pinging away at a couple hundred beats a minute for a while until they finally get mature enough to stop wanting to call the shots. They have to go through like adolescence basically so that they recognize that their job is to just work and not pace. I have to say it inspires confidence in a result when the investigator disproves his or her own hypothesis. You know what I'm saying? Your <laughs> we, ego sacrifices, but I believe you. Come visit us in Seattle. We're wrong all the time, but at least their data hold up. And that's the bottom line. Reproducibility is uh, uber all us, right? Right. And when, as we're in terms of like the build, the functional improvement here 
in this uh, round of experiments was more so than you that you'd see. I guess you didn't really assess function in the earlier to the same degree, but the major leap forward, would you say it's more contribution, a more robust contribution? Is that because you're your protocols have kind of gotten better. You've gotten better at, at transplanting. What do you think the the improvements that you've integrated or your group has integrated, what have they been that have led to this more effective approach? I think we partly got just better at measuring cardiac function in these macaque monkeys. And so in our first study, we did, to be self-critical, we did kind of a crappy job at measuring heart function. And so we use cardiac ultrasound, and it's really not the best way to look at function in these animals. And so we couldn't see much of a deficit in function from inducing the heart attack, and then we couldn't see much of an effect of transplanting our cells, and it was kind of like, eh, maybe. And so what we went on to do this time, we, we said, okay, I mean, the best way to look at function of the heart is by magnetic resonance imaging. So we took the time, we got our act together in advance, and we learned how to do MRI scans on macaque monkeys so that we could get a good look at their heart and see, uh, see how well it's beating. And so there's this, this metric that we use that's called ejection fraction. And, the, and what that really is, is how much blood gets squeezed out of the left ventricle with each beat. And in a normal, healthy macaque, that's about 70% or so. And what we found was the way we were injuring the heart by a myocardial infarction in our first study barely made a dent in that. We hardly reduced the organ's contractile function at all from maybe 70% to 65%, something like that. And that, of course, was because we'd done these dinky little infarcts because we wanted all the animals to survive because it was really a feasibility and engraftment study, that sort of thing. And so we were hedging our bets towards not having complications because we'd never done this before. And so when we actually got around to measuring function carefully, we had basically no functional deficit. And so no functional deficit, no ability to detect an improvement in function. We've got to do bigger infarcts if we want to mimic what's going on with patients who have big myocardial infarctions. And so we did, we gave the animals significantly larger infarcts, and this dropped their ejection fractions from, say, 70% down to about 40%. We said, okay, now we've got a big window to work on and see if we can improve upon it. So armed with that sort of model building background, we were then able to test the effects of transplanting our cardiomyocytes in. And we were delighted to see how well they performed. In a month, they took the ejection fraction from about uh, 40% to 51%. And by three months, it took it to about 62%. So we were really you know, back 90% of the way or so to normal at three months. And so this really exceeded our expectations for the ability of these cells to repair the heart. And considering these ectopic pacemakers that get formed as these cells are integrating themselves and going through, as you say, their adolescent period, thinking of transferring this from our primate cousins to humans, we don't want to have those kinds of arrhythmias in the human heart. So what is the balance here between finding either a more developed cell type? How can we think about potentially getting rid of these arrhythmic cells? So, Kiki, I mean, this is what I wake up every morning. Every day, about, right? My wife is so tired of me talking about this at the dinner table. But it's like, that's what I'm totally into at the moment. The first thing I'll say is that we have a period that lasts two or three weeks. It, it isn't, this isn't going to be a problem for a lifetime. But it could be, but it's very serious while it's going on. So you're absolutely right. We take it seriously and we don't want it to happen in patients. There's a couple of approaches that we're working on. The first is, can we treat this with drugs? 
And there's a bunch of different antiarrhythmic drugs uh, that the FDA has approved. And so we are currently screening each and every one of them singly and in combinations and things like that to see if any of them can treat this. One of the things that we're finding is this rhythm is a rhythm of human creation. It doesn't seem to have existed in nature until we made it. And, and I sort of just laugh at myself because, you know, it was obviously we're, we don't quite know the best way to do this. and We're getting in our own way a little bit, but we're making some progress uh, with in terms of finding drug treatments to suppress the rhythm disturbance until they can, you know, get through the woods, if you will, and the cells will mature. The second approach is, can we alter the cells themselves? And we have two tacks that we are taking in that regard. The first is to try to push their maturation. We know that if this is pacemaking, the cells don't stay pacemaking forever. It's just while they're immature. So is there a way to push their electrical maturity to the point where they lose these pacemaking currents that we think are responsible for carrying the electrical events that lead to the rhythm disturbance? And so we're making good progress, but we don't have the answer yet. And then the, the last element is to use genome editing. And this is you know CRISPR-Cas9, that sort of stuff, to edit the human genome, which is a wonderful technology. And so we have a sort of a top list of candidates that we think might be carrying this arrhythmic current. These currents aren't present in normal adult cells in the ventricle. And so we submit that to be a heart repair cell, you don't even need them. So we know the current, we know the, the protein, the, the ion channel that carries the current, and we know the gene that codes for that ion channel. And so we're using genome editing, take these suckers out. And then the, the goal will be to, you know, does this make the arrhythmias go away? We're doing this initially just because we want to know the mechanism, but maybe that would be a good way to just ensure that the cells are much more chilled electrically and they aren't going to try to take over and be the lead pacers as well. So we, you know, potentially we could think about going to the FDA with a gene edited cell if it works really well when we test it out. Those are the works in progress right now. I wish I had the answer for you. And my wife wishes I had the answer for you also. Well, I think your answer certainly illustrates how many dimensions you have to come at the problem from. And just to review, in the last couple of years, you had this ALPK2 driving cardiogenesis story, this HOPEX and hematopoiesis, some nature protocols about your refined differentiation, DAB2 story, cardiac development negatively affected by e-cigarettes. So you're doing everything. And it's, I think, a testament to the fact that, you know, the problem or your interest, I guess, is basic. But like everybody gets in line, of course, for the nature and the nature biotech story because it's cells in the heart and a monkey and everybody's going crazy. Does that annoy you that there's this disproportionate attention? And whether or not it annoys you, do you think it's because, honestly, uh, do you think it's because the heart story is like the culmination of all the other ones and has the biggest upside and is the biggest, genuinely, objectively the biggest story? Or do you think it's more because it captures the imagination of the press? I mean, that, that's an interesting question, Dale. It doesn't annoy me. It's just sort of the way life is. We wouldn't be here talking if it weren't for the Nature Biotech paper. And so it, to be annoyed by that is sort of like being annoyed by gravity. It's just the way the world works. We would never have had these nature or nature biotech papers or whatever if it weren't for all of the step-by-step, brick-by-brick basic science kinds of things. And as a basic scientist, I love to do these projects that, you know, how is it that it really works? What are the genetic regulatory pathways and things like that? But I recognize that we are 
let's just say writing for a much smaller audience because it's kind of geeky and it's stuff that I really love, but I get it that the whole world doesn't really, you know, look, isn't really thrilled by negative regulation of the wind beta catenin pathway. Whereas when you make a step forward that says, hey, this might be an emerging therapy for heart failure, it's just necessarily, it speaks to a larger audience. And I think that's why it is. And what I like is the fact that I think all of this basic science that we do makes us much better scientists when it comes to doing something translational. It makes us rigorous. It makes us self-critical. It makes us skeptical of our own work because we know how complicated these systems are. And when you're trying to do something that, that has never happened in nature before, like make the heart regenerate, having spent all this time studying nature as a biologist teaches you a great deal of respect and humility for her. Because the idea is basically we've got to work with nature and, and learn the lessons and not in any way think we're in control. I'm curious where what you're working on with this, you know, just taking cells, these embryonic stem cells and giving a shot to the heart per se versus the heart patch methodologies versus let's regenerate a heart. You know, let's, let's do use a 3D bio scaffold and seed it with cells and grow somebody, you know, their own heart all these different pathways towards treating heart disease. Can you speak to the challenges and are they all good for different things? Or is there, you know, which one's the right one? Which one's going to save us? I wish I were smart enough to have the answer. I think we're still at the stage where it's good that we've got diversity in the ecosystem, that we have different people doing different kinds of ideas because I can only do, so I'm sort of ADHD and I have my fingers in all these different pots, but I can only do so much and we need different people and with ideas. There are, there are people who think my idea is terrible and that the patch is the way to go, that sort of thing. I'll just say we worked in patches for about a decade and we backed away on that because what we found is that we can make beautiful looking heart muscle that sits on the surface of the heart, but it doesn't hook up electrically. There's a scar tissue barrier that prevents its electrical integration. And so it will, in the experiments, these weren't done in rats, the rat heart muscle is beating merrily at 360 beats a minute, and the human heart muscle is sitting there on the surface of the heart at beating at 40 beats a minute. It's very, it looks great under the microscope, but if you do the physiology, it's completely out of sync. And so it can't really assist the pump. All it can do is provide like what, what I'd call trophic factors, soluble things that may, may be healthy for the tissue, but it's not really what I'd call proper remuscularization. So that's led us to say, okay, We've got to get the cells into the wall where they can actually touch the other heart muscle cells. And that's how electrical transmission happens in the heart. It's, it's from one cell touching another and, and current flows from cell to cell. And that's the whole synchronicity thing about the heartbeat. And then in terms of bioscaffolds and, and all that kind of stuff, we play around a lot with bioengineering. A lot of people, I mean, Cornell's got a great bioengineering program, for example, and, and that sort of thing. We play around in that. I'm glad people are doing it. I see that as further off. I guess, right, I've gotten interested in cell therapy because I think this is going to be the fastest way to get new heart muscle grown in a human patient. And I think once we try to do this in patients, we're going to learn all kinds of stuff. There may be whole new problems that are coming up that we never even imagined once we get into people. And I think it's about time to start learning those because in the end, models are just models. And, you know, I've been at this for 20 years or longer. And you can only go so long before you've got to take it to the patient and see whether what you're doing makes sense. So I think that's the way to get there first. The patch thing could be made to work if we could figure out how to get electrical integration. Bioscaffolds could be made to work. 
controlling the heart, the cell cycle of the remaining cardiac muscle cells so that they start to divide and repopulate. That can work. And reprogramming cells that aren't heart muscle cells into heart muscle cells can be made to work. But those are further down in the developmental horizon. And so, you know, I sort of picked mine and got obsessed with it. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, clearly, that was a I really think... long answer. I'm sorry. For no, that. Yeah. no, it's a, it was a complete <laughs> answer. Following on it, you know, the, you're not the only one clearly who's got the idea that cells may be the quickest route. And also emphasizing moving into humans, your boy, Michael Laflamme, who was, you know, co-author, co-senior. My, my man, not your my boy, man. my, my <laughs> man. Yes, your man. And Lauren Studer and Gordon Keller and Vivian Tabar, they started this Blue Rock thing, Series A, 200 million. So there's a lot of emphasis on bringing this to market. And I know yeah. you had a company, I looked into this, founded, you know, preceded theirs, 10 years old now, Beat Biotherapeutics. Do you, I mean, it seems like you're staying in a more academic basic, but do you now with a story like this in the Nature Biotech, I mean, just looking at the pictures, like if I were your man, Laflamme, I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't have left. I should have hung out with my man a little bit longer. But do you now go to, to market with this type of idea or what's like the next stage or what's in the cooker for you? Yeah. So we're very much thinking about that because nothing just jumps out of an academic laboratory into the healthcare sector. You get things to a certain point and then it's you've got to put on your big boy pants, so to speak, and make the move for commercialization. And then the, the question is, how do you do that? Do you license it to somebody and just let them take it over? Do you try to spin out a company and that sort of thing? And so that's what we're trying to get sorted in our own minds right now, because I think with the stage that our work is, it's getting to the point where it's, it, we need to accelerate. We need to get ready to do patients. And it's hard to do that when your funding is from the federal government. The government is not really designed for rapid acceleration and then a sort of nimble sort of focused expansion. We've begun to look for private sector funding, and that's a work in progress right now. And I think the people in Blue Rock that you alluded to, I mean, they're a brilliant team of scientists. I think they're pretty happy where they're sitting <laughs> right now. I won't speak for them, but that would be my notion. Uh, they're, yeah. they're sitting on a, a big chunk of capital, and they're probably pretty cheerful. I think you're right about that for sure, but your cheer is sure to match theirs, if not already. You seem like a cheerful guy yourself, just I, with the I, result. It's not I really about the money. All right. So I think this the entrepreneur business side of things is an, a direction that a lot of basic scientists are and academics are really interested in these days because of the funding environment kind of drying up and becoming much more competitive. For young scientists coming in, do you think that there is like a balance to be found in applying for funding, looking at your research and considering it for maybe startup potential? I mean, should young investigators kind of think of themselves as business people and entrepreneurs in this environment currently? I think young people have to think of themselves that way nowadays, and I think they mostly are. I think that when I look at the entering assistant professors nowadays, they're so much savvier than I ever was. Uh, I mean, the times have really changed. When I grew up making business deals and talking about commercialization, it was sort of like you were prostituting your science. You know, what's matter, the, the pursuit of knowledge is not good enough for you. And the consequence to that was most of our knowledge didn't go anywhere. It didn't go into service to humanity. It just kind of sat there in these stale academic journals in the libraries. And so and now, in part motivated by the, the changing 
government funding uh, priorities and that sort of thing, people have to be more nimble. And so I always tell young people nowadays, you, you know, look, government's going to be here, but you can't just rely, you can't be on the federal dole the way my generation was when we were coming up, that you're going to have to, you're going to have to live on your wits and you'll probably have to have a portfolio where you've got federal, you have to learn to talk and do fundraising, work with philanthropists and things like that. And then you've got to be entrepreneurial and you've got to look for ability for, for opportunities for your work to make an impact in the healthcare sector and biotech in some kind of way. To me, that seems actually interesting and exciting and more interesting than just being in pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. To be in pursuit of knowledge in service to society is kind of a cool thing. It's an interesting shift in the mindset for being an investigator these days. We usually end our interviews with one last question. And Kiki, I think we got it because it's going to be so hard for him. I think because it's clear that Dr. Murray here loves science so much. I think we have to ask him the third. Do you agree? That's the exact question I was thinking. All right, go for it. Give it to him. Now I'm nervous. (laughs) So we haven't asked this question in a while. So I am interested in your answer. If you hadn't chosen science as a career, what would you have done and why? That's such an interesting question. I probably would have been a physician, but that's maybe you know, not exactly what you're looking at either. I mean, I clearly would have been a physician because I set out to be a surgeon. And then I one thing led to another. And through a series of terrible judgments on my part, I ended up where I am. But if I were to totally forego science and engineering, it's because I like to be useful. I would probably be, I'd still be in science in some way because that's just my brain. But I would be in environmental science in some way, because I think that is another enormous unmet societal need. And I mean, you know, just to be cliche, think about global warming and all that kind of stuff, waste management, which is boring but critical. And so I have the ability to get interested in things that other people find really tedious. It's one of my gifts. I think it would probably be something like that. I think I could be really happy in environmental science. You know, I'm just waiting for somebody someday to say that they would like play the lute or something. Everybody <laughs> just has such a sensible answer. Can't oh, sorry. be selfish. Well, I mean, good for you. Do I have athletic skills in this new scenario? Yeah, I mean, you sure. know, you have superhuman skills if you want to. <laughs> so it's sort of I, I was sort of just thinking I was plain old me, you know, but uh, yeah. Anyway, it's fun to think about. It is. And I can imagine no matter what you would have potentially chosen, it would have always ended up with interesting dinner table conversations with your wife. She is quite a lucky woman. I will say that. In fact, I've tried to get people to start calling her lucky for a nickname, but <laughs> amazingly, it hasn't caught on. <laughs> Keep trying. Keep working on that one. Tilt at that windmill also, yes. Oh, Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us today and discussing your work with us. You are most welcome. What a fun conversation this was. It has been absolutely entertaining, educational. I know that our audience is going to appreciate it very much. Everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter. We are at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And you can always take our survey, don't forget that, at stemcellpodcast.com. Be sure to tune in for our next episode in two weeks. That concludes episode 123 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. 